Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. One of the um, things that I always come back to when people ask me, should I buy index funds or active funds? I mean, well, that's a bit like walking into a bottle shop and saying, should I buy bottles or cans before you've worked out what you want to drink? So if you want to drink beer and you're going camping, cans are probably the right answer because they're lighter to carry, you can crush them when they're finished and they cool down quicker. On the other hand, if you are having a Wagyu steak and you want a full-bodied Shiraz, you probably don't want to be drinking out of a can. You probably want it out of a bottle and you probably want a bottle with a cork. So what do you want to drink is the first question. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. What is an index? What if there's more than one? Do you say indexes or indices? And should you invest in an index or consider a manager who actively seeks high returns? Joining me is Vince Scully from Life Sherpa. G'day, Vince. G'day, Phil. It's great to have you in the studio. I know. It's really strange. No, I'm, I'm not in my usual studio here at the moment. And um, it's very, very comfortable and highly professional. So how's things going, Vince? Going great. Life Sherpa is uh, having a great year and... Um it's just a great time to be an advisor. <laughs> Despite what you might read in the paper, I yep. keep telling all of my colleagues that there has never been a better time. And um, But everyone's leaving the industry and there's all the new regulations and no one knows what's going to happen with the new review, the Levy review. But it, it's all copacetic, isn't it? Yeah, all change is good change, though, Phil. Mm-hmm. Creative destruction. And, uh, of course, you know, with fewer advisors and more people needing advice, that's obviously great if you're an advisor. Not so good if you're a consumer, of course which is why I created Love Sherpa, so that we could get affordable advice. I just wanted to start off. I wanted to—I was mentioning that I wanted to tell you a story yeah. that I heard at the Australian Shareholders Association annual conference last week. And um, it was one of those things where at lunchtime you end up on those little tables and you end up talking to people that you would um, just randomly meet. Mm-hmm. And was talking to an electrical engineer and a grandmother. Now, I don't want to uh, categorize it too much, <laughs> but she looked very grandmotherly and that was why she was there because she'd inherited some shares. She wanted to learn about shares and she wanted to teach her grandchildren mm-hmm. about investing. And lovely, lovely woman. Hello, Rosaline, if you're listening. Yes. I, I did tell her about this podcast. And was she in fact a grandmother? She was, yeah, but she was talking about teaching her grandkids and about which ones were interested and which ones weren't. And But um, the problem is one of her grandkids actually made a lot of money out of gambling. And what he was betting on was after the 2020 US election, there are a lot of people who thought Donald Trump was going to win Mm -hmm. and he was just betting against them. And he was betting thousands and thousands of dollars and made 
Can I say shitloads? <laughs> that was probably a good bet. So I've got the, my first question. We're going back to basics here. What is an index? That's a really good question because these things are sort of taking a bit of a life of their own. The whole, it really started as a way of answering the question, how did it go on the market? As long as we've been trading, whether hmm. it's wool or shares, we've always wanted to know that question. Go back to the 16th century and Shylock, Merchant of Venice goes, what news on the Rialto? Mm -hmm. right? How do we go on the market today? And so we created various ways of doing that. We started with, um, you know, did individual shares go up or down? Did more of them go up or down? Or did more of them go up than went down? So we then had the declines versus advances rule. Mm -hmm. And then when we developed a bit more sophisticated technology, you could squinting out, does it look mostly red or mostly green? And then we started to build indexes. Indices. Uh, or indices <laughs> even. The Dow Jones is 1920s, 1920s. Mm -hmm. And that was really just a basket of stocks that whoever created it um, thought broadly represented the market. But as technology improved and we had the ability to process lots of data in real time, we started to move on to broader based indexes. So the S&P 500 is 500 shares, unsurprisingly. Because mm. um, the Dow Jones is only 30, 31, 30, 31 yeah. shares, yeah. And they're very eclectic mix mm. and it's not cap weighted. Mm. Um, so the big ones, the most popular ones are now capital weighted so that the bigger the bigger a proportion of the market a share is, the bigger it, its component of the index is. And that's become a way of going, answering the question, how did it go in the market? Mm. And from there, it became a measure of um, benchmarking. So mm. if I'm managing a fund, did I? how did I go against the the index or the benchmark? And here in Australia, it's the ASX 200. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It was the, the, all, it was all, the order. all odds. Um, yeah. And then the S&P ASX 200 and 300. And like, like you said, they're, they're weighted by capitalization. So when you're looking at the ASX 200, the vast weight of that index is the banks, the miners. That's right. Half, yeah. of, half of it is in the top 10. Mm, mm. Um, and then it be become today a way of selecting stocks to put in a diversified pool. Mm. And that's where most people, I think, think about indexes mm. as a, a tool for constructing a portfolio. Mm. And those three purposes require different things from an index. And picking the right one is is the key to getting it right. Mm. Um, so if I'm um, trying to benchmark myself, I sort of need an index that reflects what I'm actually doing. So is our broad index like the ASX 200, which is largely a large cap finance and materials index, is that an appropriate measure if I'm running a, a tech stock, tech fund? Mm. Probably not. And is that index the right thing for me? Which I guess we can sort of come back to, to later. But that's really what an index is and you've got to make sure you're picking the right index for what you're doing. Mm. But in, in its most basic terms, if you're trying to pick your own shares to buy, 
you really need to benchmark it against, say, what you would get if you just put it into a, a vanilla ETF, ASX 200 ETF. You don't really have to think about that unless well, that you're assumes, trying to outperform it. Well, that assumes that your goal as an investor is mm. to outperform the market, whatever the market might be, mm. and to choose, you choose. <laughs> to choose that as a goal, you've got yeah. to do two things. You've got to pick a market. Well, you've got to do three things. You've got to pick a market, mm. you've got to do something different, and that different thing has to somehow relate to the goal that you're trying to achieve. So a goal to outperform a market is meaningless for a lot of people mm. because what what are they investing for? They're investing to achieve some goal, whether that's to retire, to start a business, to put their kids through school to retire early, to have a holiday. All of those things have a a time frame and an amount of money they're prepared to allocate to it, and return is the balancing number. So I can choose to, I want to outperform the market. And for most people in Australia, the market means the ASX 200. Or I can choose enough risk to achieve the return I need, or I can choose to maximize my return for any given level of risk. And there are three different objectives, and only two of them will actually align with your goal. So the notion of outperforming a market, whilst a useful benchmark if you're a fund manager, is sort of academic in a consumer space. And uh, we should just mention that most ETFs, just about any ETF is based on an index. And if anyone's interested in finding out a bit more, I did actually track down um, in episode 71 of the podcast, Simon Caravan. He's a good Sydney Greek boy who's working in Singapore and his job is creating indices. And it was actually better talking to him off air than when we went on here because he, the stuff that he was telling me off air was much more interesting than when he was being polite and well behaved. But there just seemed to be some indexes, some indices are better than others. And as we know, some ETFs are created as marketing tools and it has to be based on an index and therefore the index is maybe, okay, it is measure, measuring something, but whether that is useful to an individual investor is another story. But of course, ETFs and indexes were made for each other because Mm -hmm. the whole concept of an ETF is that you can exchange the assets held by the fund manager for interests in the fund, which means you've got to have a public basket of what's in the fund. And if you're trying to run an active fund, you don't really want to be giving away all of your positions in real time. Whereas an index being a publicly available basket of assets that's easy to hedge generally um, makes them ideal for ETFs. So the two sort of go hand in hand. Well, of course, there are unlisted index funds as well, but ETFs work really well with indexes. Now, in my hastily constructed introduction, <laughs> I didn't mention that the point of this discussion is that we're going to be looking at um, the difference between active and index investing. So, and this is a very broad, when you start 
digging into it. This is very, very broad. But um, what's your summary of the difference? Well, at the risk of cutting this very, very short, mm -hmm. I would say that there is, is actually no such thing as passive. Um, that choice of an index and indeed construction of an index are both active decisions. And so... I Vince, you're doing my head in. <laughs> I rather think of the word as being rules-based or index-based, that it's not actually a passive decision. And there is a committee that decides what's in the ASX 200, so it's not purely a mathematical construct. So by choosing the ASX 200, you are by definition saying, I want to put half my money in the top 10, which means I'm taking a large capitalization position. I'm putting 27% of my money in financials and I'm putting 24% of my money in materials. So half in the top 10, half in financials and materials. I'm also choosing a price to book of two times. Hang on, what's, what's price, so price to price to book? book that is the value of the shares relative to their assets in their accounts. And that's a measure. So if you, if you have to sell off the whole of the ASX 200, that's... Well, it's two times what the accountants the, think it's worth. It's not necessarily its actual well, market value. A measure of yeah. sorts. Yeah. And the, the significance and the of the sorry, you were going to go into P, P of yeah. 12 to 13. Mm -hmm. So the consequence of that is it's large cap tilted, it's financials tilted, it's materials tilted, it's value tilted, i.e., a relatively low price to book by world standards, and a relatively modest P by world standards. On the other hand, SP 500, only 27% are in the top 10. 25% in techs, in tech, and only 13% in financials, and as little as 2.5% in materials. But it's got a price to book of 3.8 and a P of 20. So that's by definition a less large cap tilt and a more growth tilt. Now, those two things will give you completely different results. So if you go back to your three-factor pharma French model, mm. um, you know, you've got market, size, and value as your three big drivers of returns. Well, those two indexes have fundamentally different factor exposure. Now, that's not an either-or, but it's just saying that the, the decision to choose the ASX 200 as your index, you're actually making a active decision to be invested in financials. Now, does that fit what your investing goal is? That's a completely different question. And just as much on the bond side, you know, if you, if you buy the Bloomberg Osborne Composite, which is what many of the big bond funds track, well, 70% invested in AAA. So that's really good for fulfilling the risk-free component of your portfolio. And they're, they're government bonds. So they're primarily Commonwealth government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 25% of it is in the seven to 10 year maturity. Mm. So you're getting an effective duration of five and a half years, which means you're going to have a particular sensitivity to rises and falls in interest rates. Is that what you as, want? As anyone who's invested in bonds over the last exactly. couple of years has um, noticed. So, you know, if I'm looking for a solution to the risk free component of my portfolio, um, I'm, as an Australian investor, I'm going to be looking for largely Australian government, local currency bonds. But is 5.4 years the right answer for my duration? That's an active decision. Mm. So 
I didn't know we were going to get into bonds here, but well, <laughs> there's so many um, questions to do with that. But, yeah, but uh, it's all to yeah. do with how long you're going to hold the bond yeah. for, isn't it? So the long, That's duration. The long, the, yeah. the, so just as for shares you get paid for market size and value, with bonds you get paid for duration and credit. Mm. The longer the duration, the higher you should expect a return, and the lower the credit, the higher Unless the you get an inverted yield curve, yeah. which is when it goes um, so Yeah. So the point of all of that, without labouring it too much, is that choosing an index is an active decision. So I rather try to think about this in the context of, is it rules-based or is it research-based? And a rules-based approach um, gives you a few few things. It gives you fairly good certainty of what you're actually investing in. So if your asset allocation decision says, I want Aussie large cap, well, if you go and buy IOZ or A200 or VAS, that's what you're going to get. Mm. And you know precisely what it's invested in and it's low cost. But the consequences is you're heavily invested in financials, value, materials, mm. large cap. Well, let's get then, though, to what we'd be traditionally looking at as active. And you said it's more of a research Based. Is that yeah. what, how you would um, more refine yeah, the I mean, definition I, I think I'd of use it, what we would normally talk about? As yeah. So I think active. by active, you're making stock selection decisions in order to achieve a particular goal. And those decisions are made generally by humans, and humans cost money, often a lot of money. And so the cost of making that decision is more expensive than mm. the cost of paying S&P their license fee and following the rules. And so you've got to say, well, why would I do that when most of the research says that the average manager doesn't outperform on average when you take into account those fees? And the answer is, if you want to achieve something different. So in order to get something different, that's different enough to support the fees and costs, you have to do something materially different. And the research will tell you that smaller managers with high conviction positions, we talk about an active share. So how different from the market is their asset selection? They're generally small numbers of positions, maybe 13 to 30 positions. And they are generally managers with large proportions of the manager investing in the fund. So in an Australian context, something like PM Capital, Mm. where Paul and his team own a big chunk of the fund. And I can't remember what the rule is, but they have some rule for their team about what percentage of your net worth you have to have invested in the company funds. And those sort of funds are the ones that tend to deliver return. The downside is you've got to find them when they're small. Mm. And that comes with a whole bunch of other risks. Mm. And and is that a managed fund? Yeah. So Paul Moore runs a business called PM Capital. He's been mm-hmm. running here. He was at BT in the glory days when Kerry Nielsen was Oh, I, hear about, I always hear about the 90s at BT. No, this is the 80s. Stories. Oh, 80s. 80s. Okay. And he set up his own mm business in mid-90s, I'm saying. Um, it's definitely 90s, I think mid-90s. Yeah, this is not a pitch for Paul, but an example of a high-conviction 
fund where they're doing something different. Mm. So if you're looking for an active manager and they use words like overweight or tilt, you're probably buying a closet index and it's unlikely to ever create something materially different. And the point of, to my mind, of doing active is to get something different. Well, most people would say more. <laughs> well, want, no, they want I, I more think, return. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that more is necessarily the right objective here. No, no I understand that completely. And I, I think that's one of the things that, um, I mean, there are actively managed ETFs. There's actively yep. managed funds. So we just should use, just to find the base term of fund. A fund is yes. just a pool of financial resources, which an ETF provider or a fund manager will allocate according to the mandate. And for example, just, just to look at it simply and just trying to break it down, I'm talking totally theoretically here. There might be an ETF, for example, that wants to maximize dividends hmm. so that there is more of an income stream for investors. So they're not looking necessarily for capital growth, but they're looking for more dividends, more cash flow, more of a steady cash flow. And that's a form of active management, isn't it? It is. And mm. I can set up a set of rules mm. that say, if my yield is greater than 1.2 times the market average, I will include this and I will use this weighting. So that allows me to create an index. I could create an index of companies whose CEO is called Phil. Um, how useful that is, is another matter, but it's oh, simply a set of set theory now. <laughs> a set of rules mm. that dictates what asset you put in the fund. Mm. Many of them follow existing indexes. So if you're an S&P 200, ASX 200 fund, you buy what S&P say mm. should be in mm. your fund. And they publish the list every quarter uh, where they add new ones and delete old ones. That decision as to which ones get added and which ones get deleted is done by real people. Mm. And it's not- So the ASX 200 is not fixed. No, there's it companies coming every quarter. Every quarter, there's companies coming in and then leaving, like relegation. Yeah, it's like, it's like the Premier, yeah. Premier League mm. relegation. Um, and which we should have here in Australia as well, in the NRL and the VFL. That's right. And they, um, so that's not a, that's not a purely mathematical question. There's a committee that meets and goes, well, based on our applying these rules and our philosophy and our biases, we'll add these three in and take these three out. It is closely related to market cap, but it also takes into account things like liquidity, how much is owned by cornerstone shareholders and a few other points, but it, they then publish the rules and that's what you buy in your ASX 200 fund. On the other hand, you can get actively managed indexes like um, the Wilder Hill, what's it called now? The Bloomberg Wilder Hill New Energy Index, which is a actively managed index of green energy companies, green companies. And every quarter they publish the new list, but it's sort of like a virtual fund where they're creating this index, which you can then buy funds and ETFs that track. Yeah. The fact that it's an index doesn't mean that it's a market cap-based index or that it's entirely rule-based. Um, but what you do know is that if you're buying a fund that tracks it using full replication, that is, they actually go and buy the stuff, 
then you know that's what you're getting. And the manager is kept honest by their tracking error. So you don't run the risk that you get style creep. So if you're investing in an active fund, let's say it's supposed to be a large cap value-based fund, well, in the long periods of time when value underperforms, even though in theory it should outperform over time, and it does, it does go for long periods of time where it underperforms. So is your manager going to be tempted to slip a little bit, (laughs) pop a little bit of growth in to spice up the returns because they're incentivized not to have the investors pull their money out because they get paid based on assets under management. So the advantage of a rules-based fund is that you avoid style creep and you get pure transparency. And those two are highly valuable attributes of a fund that should never be underestimated. So investors, if they're looking for um, access to what we're broadly defining as a little bit more active than Mm -hmm. ASX 200 tracking Mm -hmm. ETF, but if they want to have some more active management, what are the ways of finding? I mean, there's ETFs and managed funds, and we should not forget LICs, listed investment companies. And of course, you could actually go and buy them. Yes, that's right. (laughs) If you had a million and a half dollars, you could replicate the ASX 200. Mm -hmm. That's the minimum you need to buy a marketable parcel. So how much is it? A million and a half. Okay, yeah. yeah. So if you were to buy a minimum tradable parcel of the mm-hmm. smallest member of the ASX 200 mm-hmm. um, and then kept going, then kept going you need a million there. and a half by the time you get to buy, get the whole thing. Yeah. And that's probably hopelessly inefficient because mm. of your trading costs. So what do you do? You either buy a subset of those yep. and hope that you've got it reasonably right, or you go and buy a pooled investment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Super is one of the most important investments you'll ever make. But how do you know if you're in the best fund for your situation? Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. And, and that, that's part of the thinking behind, I know, with some LICs, is that why do you want to own all the banks? And why do you want to own all the resource companies? And this is the place where sometimes active decision-making can help to produce either similar or better returns or um, better outcomes, depending on what you You can. I mean, only two of the banks have outperformed the ASX 200 over the last 20 years. Mm. Macquarie? Macquarie and CBA. Yeah. I've been looking at Macquarie. <laughs> I just was looking at the CAGE, the um, compounding annual growth rate of Macquarie Bank for like 20 years, and something like 20%. I mean... That's outperforming significantly the benchmark. I'm not saying, you know, we're not recommending that anyone goes out and buys <laughs> Macquarie. Well, it was $3.50 when mm. I bought my first parcel mm-hmm. in 95, mm. before it was listed. Yep. And today it's 200 and something. 176, I think. I didn't crack 200 recently? I did, but it's oh, dropped okay. off a little bit. I think the banking 
stuff in America is affected at a bit. So, yeah, so they're the only two. Mm. Um, and the other one would be CBA? Yeah, yes. CBA and Macquarie mm -hmm. are the only two over five and ten years. Yeah. They've all underperformed over mm. one, three, and five, uh, one, one and three, mm. um, despite making up a quarter of the index. <laughs> you could probably make a good living out of trading pairs of banks, like picking two banks and trading in and out of them. Um, my days of Don't doing, try this at home. <laughs> my days of doing that are well over, mm. but I used to do it quite regularly. Mm. Um, anyway, so getting back to so, the question. So getting back yeah. to, yes, we're getting back to your question. Yeah, with, um, what's the vehicle and how can people start yeah. thinking? I mean, it, it's, we're talking, I guess, here as broad approaches. So you really got, if you ignore the buy everything yourself thing, you really got managed funds, LICs or listed investment companies or ETFs. And all three of those can be active or indexed. The traditional approach was managed funds. They offer the great advantages that you're always going to buy or sell at net asset value, but you do it once a day, or in some cases, once a month or month. once a quarter, yeah. mm -hmm. but generally end of close of business. So there's never a gap between what you pay and what you get. The downside was they used to be bought by filling in the form at the back of a PDS and mailing it in with a check which is, hasn't got all that much better with um, technology. Although there's M funds, isn't there? Right? Yeah, um, they really haven't taken off as much. Now, perhaps that's because of the growth of ETFs at the same time, that maybe they'd missed the boat on that one. And so we got LICs, or listed investment companies, or listed trusts in the UK. So the point of a listed investment was that you could buy and sell it on the stock market. Very efficient. Um, even when you had to mail in your um, your certificate or your stockbroker held it. But the disadvantage was that the price depended on the supply and demand of the investment itself. So a manager that was perceived to be hot or good would often trade at a premium to the underlying assets. These are LICs. LICs, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so that meant that you were paying a dollar ten for a dollar worth of assets return. As long as that discount or premium doesn't change, you're indifferent. But it adds a complexity hmm. that not only do I have to look at what's happening to the underlying portfolio, but I've got to look at what's happening to this premium or discount. And the opposite happens as well, doesn't it? That there are many that will be trading at a discount. Yeah, absolutely. Net, net asset. Yeah. Value. So a manager that's out of favour, they'll trade at a discount. Hmm. So the ETF was designed to solve that difference that you had the simplicity but logistical complexity of unlisted funds and the simplicity of buying and selling listed companies but the price discount premium problem so etfs were designed to solve that problem and they solve that problem by being able to create or destroy units to match the supply-demand problem. So if there's a greater demand for I or Z, then there is supply. BlackRock can create more. And the market makers get to really exchange the physical underlying basket of shares for units in the fund. So if the fund is trading at more than the value of the underlying assets, people will buy units and say, give me the basket, please, and vice versa. So that keeps the too fairly closely matched. And that's, and that's that's what's called open-ended, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So it's open-ended because you can add or subtract units. Hmm. And the other thing that it solves 
is, um, and this is largely a, a legal tax quirk rather than a, a design, is that the creation and destruction of units doesn't create a CGT or capital gains tax event in the fund. So as an investor in an ETF, I'm not exposed to the behavior of the other investors. Firstly, because most of them are traded on the secondary market. And secondly, when they are created or destroyed, there is no CGT event. Whereas in a unlisted fund, if there's more redemptions than there are contributions, the manager has to sell the underlying assets, realize a gain or a loss, and it gets passed on to all members. Now, this is really only a benefit or problem, depending on which side of the coin you're on, where a fund is shrinking, net-net shrinking, because the growth, so creating a new, new unit, buying more assets doesn't create a, a problem. It's only the sale that creates the problem. So in an unlisted fund, I'm exposed to the behavior of my fellow investors, whereas in an ETF, I'm not. On the other hand, um, you know, because it's traded all day, every day, the price is not just a single daily price, so it looks more volatile. And this is why Jack Bogle, you know, the founder of um, Vanguard, was a very reluctant entrant into the ETF market. You look at Vanguard today, and it's a huge player, but Jack was totally opposed to this in the early days. He was dragged kicking and screaming into this. Yeah, even though he's credited as being the, well, the father of ETFs. Well, the father of the index. The index, fund, I think. yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and people do today sort of treat them as synonyms, they do. but yeah. they're not really. Mm -hmm. um, but Jack was not a fan of the ETF because he felt people would use it as trading, mm -hmm. and trading in his mind was evil, whereas the managed fund sort of, you couldn't intraday trade it. Yep. And so that was his reluctance to to move into ETFs. But today, for many people, ETF equals index fund mm -hmm. and vice versa, which is not quite true. Most ETFs are index-based, but not all index funds are ETFs. There's a place for each of those. But there are some tax efficiencies of an ETF, and there are certainly trading and access to information benefits. So you can use a, a tool like ShareSite and it knows the price every minute. So you can open the app and see your price. Maybe with a 20 minute delay, I think. 20 minute, I think it is, yeah. 15, um, 20, something like whereas that. Whereas yeah. with, with the managed fund or unlisted fund, you end up with an end of day price. We've sort of spoken briefly about the fees associated with each approach, but um, the more humans involved, the more it costs. Yep. Is that what it comes down to? That's broadly, that if you mm. if you want Porsche driving, private school educating their kids, managers. Wearing their old school ties. Um, mm -hmm. I think people have sort of given up on the old school tie. Um, <laughs> but that just costs money mm. and um, may or may not add value, but it's certainly a way of getting a different result. Mm. So all comes back to your objective. But on average, you would say that the typical indexed fund is cheaper than the typical active managed fund. So and that's, and that's just that's just one consideration to it take in, in it as well, because you, you have to weigh that against the, the value that might be added yeah, by active and, management. Yeah, and one of the um, things that I always come back to when people ask me, should I buy index funds or active funds? 
And I go, well, that's a bit like walking into a bottle shop and saying, should I buy bottles or cans before you've worked out what you want to drink? So if you want to drink beer and you're going camping, cans are probably the right answer because they're lighter to carry, you can crush them when they're finished, and they cool down quicker. On the other hand, if you are having a Wagyu steak and you want a full-bodied Shiraz, you probably don't want to be drinking out of a can. You probably want it out of a bottle, and you probably want a bottle with a cork. So what do you want to drink is the first question. And if what you want to drink is something that, well, in this case, if let's say I want to invest in large cap value stocks in the Australian market, well, an ASX 200 indexed fund is probably the right answer. And then you need to ask yourself, well, do I buy an unlisted fund, which can make management easier if you insert the circumstances, or do I want to buy an ETF? which I can buy online at the tap of a pen or, or an LIC or indeed an LIC. That's the decision you need to make. And once you've made the decision that you that's what you want, then yeah, fees matter. But you should only look at fees once you've sure you're comparing like with like. And so are the factors that you should consider, are they the usual sort of things you um, hear when you talk to a financial advisor about where you are in life, what your goals are? Absolutely, yeah. So that's what it comes so down to. So step number one, the, the biggest difference that you're going to make is the quality of your decisions. And your decisions will be better if they align with a real-life goal. And that will make a much bigger difference to whether you buy you know, eight basis points or 20 basis points. Now, I know all the software bros on the five groups and Reddit are going to shoot me down for that, <laughs> but this is the difference between theory and reality that you know, one of the most important things is, is it a portfolio that you're going to stay the course? And if it's not, you'll never realise the theoretical higher return. So get your asset allocation right first, and that's based on goals, risk profile, time horizon. Your own knowledge as well, what you've been exposed to. Well, exactly. Yeah, familiarity can be important, mm. but you know, let's not get too hung up on recency bias and all those other biases. Um, mm. you know, why do people buy rental properties in the, or investment properties in the same neighbourhood? Because they feel like they know it, but you're not getting diversification. Mm. So what do you want? Do you want familiarity or do you want diversification? And then how am I going to achieve that asset allocation? Asset allocation at its broader sense is you know, bonds or shares, but within each of those markets, you've got various things you look at. So we talked briefly about bonds. I know this is called shares for beginners, but they're the easy ones. I, go, deal I go on about fixed income Let's so deal much because the way. It's, so, it's so big. The market is so big and has such an influence on equity markets that uh, it's worth but there's sort of two, there's two yeah. things I'm buying when I buy a bond fund mm. for my duration and credit, and they're the two things I get paid for. So I mm -hmm. need to make a decision as to why am I buying these bonds. Mm -hmm. And for many people, bond allocation is about ballast. It's about smoothing your returns. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you if you live in a developed market, you want to be buying local currency, highly rated, mostly government bonds. The investable index that aligns with that in Australia is the Bloomberg Osbond index. Mm -hmm. And so you can go and buy IAF is the the big one. And um, with shares, you own them. With uh, bonds, you loan them. That's right. You can own it or loan it. We'll be returning to our guest in a moment after this brief message. Investing in shares can be fun. 
but the paperwork isn't. My investing's been transformed since using ShareSite, the best portfolio tracking tool in Australia and New Zealand. My portfolios are on ShareSite and whenever I buy or sell, they're automatically recorded. I can see the dividends I'm receiving and the franking credits and it helps me to work out my asset allocation. ShareSite are extending a special offer to listeners of this podcast. Four months free on an annual premium plan. There's a seven-day free trial where you can experience the full power of ShareSite portfolio management. Go to sharesite.com slash shares for beginners and sign up now for a free trial before taking advantage of four free months. That's sharesite.com slash shares for beginners. But so that's if I'm treating, if I want bonds for ballast, then I'm looking for local currency highly rated. Mm. So that is as close to a risk free as I can get. If I want bonds for income, I now need to start looking offshore to get diversification and enough exposure to credit. So they're the two things you can focus on in terms of bonds, duration and credit. When it comes to shares, it's a little bit more complicated. So you've got um, geography, so market. Do I buy Australian? Do I buy US? Do I buy European? Do I buy emerging markets? Do I buy size? Do I buy big ones or small ones, medium-sized ones? Do I buy value or growth? So am I looking for shares that are likely to deliver greater returns? I I mean, value, the value premium, the size premium, both of those will give me a higher expected return. You're not always going to get it. Last year's been particularly unkind to small caps. Just as they led the growth up, they've led the fall down. Value was looking out of fashion when the big tech companies were driving most of the returns in the US market. But they're the factors that drive returns. So which one of these do I want? And then do I focus on the, in technical terms, the lower beta stocks, which is the stuff that moves around less than the market. So real real estate and infrastructure are the main players there, which behave a little bit more like real assets. That is, yeah, they link to GDP, um, they're inflation hedged, generally less volatile. So they can behave a little like a bond, giving you a little bit more stability without giving up too much return. Mm. So how I mix all of those is my asset allocation. Mm. Um, and then I've got to decide, having done that, well, what what am I going to do? So the big, large cap, value, ASX 200, it's pretty easy. In the US, S&P 500, when I move outside that, I'm probably looking at MSCI or an F, a FTSE mm. Russell mm. Um, not all of those indexes are created equal, but that's my decision. As allocation, then is there an index that tracks that particular allocation? And if there is, then what fund will track that? And do they actually track it? So what's their tracking area? Do they actually replicate it? Do they sample it? Bond funds are typically sampled because there's so many and you can't hold them all, but share funds should generally be fully replicated. And that's my decision. And then once I've got that, I need to focus on rebalancing and making sure these indexes don't change Mm. their characteristic. So when um, MSCI gradually brought China into the world index, from 2018, there was like stuff all China in there, whereas now it's 6 7%, I think, I can't remember. But that changed the nature of what you're buying. So if you don't want to be in China, 
then maybe it's time to pick a new index. And that's the challenge for most people, that the Redditors in this will go, oh, look, all you need is is Vanguard and all you need is VAS and VGS or VAS and VTI. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. The thought that there is a single right answer for everybody and that higher returns are by definition better returns is just nonsense. Probably a very unpopular view, but you know, just because the ASX 200 is the highest performing stock market in the world over the last 120 years. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Followed very closely by the Johannesburg one. Doesn't mean that you should put everything on the SX200. If there was the possibility of that answer, then everyone should just buy a global fund and enough local government bonds, as in local currency issued by your local government, national government of the country you live in, and that's all we'd ever need. Hmm. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, I see here are other examples and some some people say, okay, you get an ASX 200 ETF, then you get a, a world index, X Australia with no Australian companies in it, and then maybe you get an S&P 500. You know, there's all ways of different, of slicing and dicing this. And I was speaking to Dave Gow from Strong Money Australia. Yep. He's got one ETF mm -hmm. and it's basically the top 100 companies in the world, geographic, agnostic. I guess, you know, as again, we're not recommending anything, but these are the kind of factors that you've got to keep in That's mind, right. isn't and, it? And About what you want. Yeah. I mean, if it weren't for currency and taxes, that two-fund model could very well work. I mean, that's based on the theory that, well, that's how the rest of the world invests as an aggregate. So it's good enough for the world, it's good enough for me. And so all I need is a global equities and a local high-rated bond. Hmm. And I just mix the two depending on my age. Problem with that is everyone in the market's not playing the same game as you are. So we talked about mandates earlier. So if I'm an equities manager and I've got a, an Australian large cap mandate, I've got to invest in Australian large cap equities, whether or not I think they're a good investment, because that's what I'm being paid to do. The aggregate investment in the market is an aggregate of a whole bunch of people playing different games. And their game is not necessarily your game. So just because 60% of the world's equities are invested in the US doesn't mean that that's the right answer for you. It might be, but this simplistic notion that I go, I mean, Lars Croyer wrote a whole book about this, saying these are the only two funds you'll ever need. Now, he wrote it from a UK perspective, where the UK is a bigger part of the world than we are. But even still, um, yeah, if it weren't for taxes and currencies, maybe. But actually, we live in a world of currencies and taxes and local regulations. An Australian investor is likely to benefit from having more Australian shares in their portfolio than the 2% they represent of the world's. In terms of active management, if you want to invest in small caps, small medium cap companies, you could go out and try and find these companies all by yourself. But there are, this is somewhere that you really do need active management. That's right. Um, I mean, for two reasons. One, certainly in Australia, there isn't a small cap index that you can trade. The small odds, which is really numbers 200 to 300, mm. are still relatively large cap companies by, yeah, relative to the other ones. Um, that's a good reason why you 
should or need to go active if there isn't an index that aligns with your investment goal. And small caps is a perfectly good example. So here at LifeShipper, we use two micro cap managers. Uh, we use OC mm-hmm. and Ausbill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have clearly added massive value to the portfolios. Is that because we're gurus of picking funds? Well, it's largely a factor play. So it's a you're investing in small cap value, mm-hmm. and so a manager can add real value. Um, so the trick is how to identify the manager and how to identify the right mandate. But they are, you know, they they've delivered fifty percent annual returns in the period leading up to just early. Remember that big bounce after the initial COVID? Mm. Well, they delivered fifty percent in that year. Mm. Like it's massive return. They're down twenty percent in the last twelve months. Mm. So you've got to have a bit of a stomach to. Well, that's right. I mean, you've got to look at what it was like in in that time. And if people were brave enough to get in right at the, the bottom, they could have made good gains, but then hanging on to them through 2022. Yeah. And so that's why, thing. that's why you don't punt everything on, mm. on black or red. So together they make up about 10, 15% of the growth portfolio. But that's where one of the areas where managers add a lot of value. Mm. Um, other areas where there isn't an appropriate index is private equity. So where do I, how do I invest in private equity? There isn't an index, so what do I do? I've got to, by definition, hire an active manager. Um, emerging markets, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that active managers add value, certainly on a global basis where you can underweight or overweight regions. China's probably a good place to be underweight. If you're going to go into specific themes or sectors, you know, if you want a healthcare fund, mm-hmm. you probably need something you understand something about healthcare. That uh, no, any, any specialization, yeah. So they're, they're, they're the semiconductors. Yes, yeah, they're all the places. Yeah. Now, whether you should be investing in that sector or not is a separate question. Yeah. But if you've made the decision to invest in healthcare, you can probably find a manager who adds value in certain markets. You may need an extra manager if you're looking for something different. So if, you, if you're not happy with a five-year duration on your Aussie bond allocation, well, you can't invest in the index. So you've got to go active. And that's a decision to take a view on duration. So if I've got a view that bond rates are heading down, or up, sorry, bond rates are heading up, then I probably don't want to be long duration. So what am I trying to do? And then if you want a, a manager that's taking a, um, a stock-specific position, so you, some of the long short funds where they might say, well, we're going to trade the difference between these two Aussie banks and these two Aussie banks. So they're not exposed to the market as a whole. They're taking mm-hmm. an absolute return focus and they're taking a view that this pair will outperform that pair. And I don't really care what the market's doing. Very specialised, mm. but that's where you can add value. So, is there an index that reflects what you want? B is it tradable? And C is there a fund that matches it? And they're the the thought processes you need to go through. So, if listeners are interested in what Life Sherpa has to offer in terms of spiritual guidance in these matters, <laughs> <laughs> what happens when they ring Life Sherpa um, in terms of getting in? 
Yeah, I mean, you'll get investment. to talk. To, I mean, you'll get to talk to a, a real advisor who'll help you align your values with your portfolio. We are generally an indexed house, so we generally believe that markets are more or less efficient. And even if they're not efficient, they behave as if they were most of the time. So we would generally only go active where there's clear evidence that there is value. And that's certainly in places like emerging markets. And that the most important decision you can make is asset allocation. Deciding on an asset allocation is important. Then actually getting what you think you're buying is important. So multi-asset funds are generally problematic in that sense. And why indexes are often important because you know precisely what you're getting. And generally, we would avoid fads and fashions, as, as Jack Bogle would call them, because there's a real science in trying to differentiate between a fad and a trend. You know, often the funds that track these trends come too late. Um, for students of history, if you go back to 1999 and look at the number of tech funds that were created in 1999, and how few of them were still there in 2002. So is it a fashion? A fad, or is it a genuine trend? And do you think that you or this manager are smarter than the average bear? Mm. And fees matter. (laughs) (laughs) And fees matter. Vince Scully, thanks very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Phil. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.